Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to The Bad Broadcast. I'm your host, Maddie Murphy. We're starting off the month of November with kind of a fun, different episode, which you already know what it's about because it's in the title. But... We're not going to get into that quite yet because this is the first episode I'm recording post midnight's release. And I'm just going to give a little, just a little tidbit of what I think about Taylor Swift's new album. I know not everybody who listens is into Taylor Swift, is a Swifty, as they say, uh, which is totally fine. Taylor Swift, to me, is like seafood. Okay, hear me out on this one. I love seafood. I, it's it's I thought that I was unique in that, by the way, like all growing up, I thought that it was like really cool and different to like seafood. Turns out a lot of people like seafood. Anyway, I digress. I love seafood. I love I love shrimp, crab, fish, sushi, anything raw. I'll eat it. I love seafood. However, when people tell me that they don't like seafood, it doesn't really shock me. And I'm not I'm not like, what? How do you not like seafood? How do you not love this? just because I really like it. It makes sense to me. The textures are kind of weird. I get that the smell is kind of off. So Taylor Swift is like that to me. I love her. I absolutely love her. When people are not super into her, it doesn't really bother me that much because I've also been there. I've gone through like ups and downs with Taylor Swift and I, uh, I'm, in, I'm in a major up. I'm in a major upswing of how much I love Taylor Swift. And I have been a fan of her since I was much younger, since I was probably like I don't know, 11, 12. I've listened to all her albums. Anyway, I love Taylor Swift is, is basically what I'm getting at, but it's okay if you don't. That would be extremely boring if we all had the same opinions about everything. It's kind of how I feel about sharing my opinion about New Girl last week. Like I had a lot of people messaging me being like, give it another shot. I love Schmidt. I love New Girl humor, which is totally fine. We shouldn't all share the same opinions. That That's, that's not how this works. So if you're not into Taylor Swift, I totally get it. But for those of you that are part of the Swifterhood, here's my just just little little insert about Midnight's. I love it. I love it. I think that it is I think that Midnight's is for the Swifties. I think it is it is written in influent Swiftian. Like it's it's for the the fans. It's for the fans. And um I also think the thing about Taylor Swift that is very hit or miss for people is that a lot of her stuff is like corny. It's corny. It's kind of on the nose. It's like, I mean, the younger generation calls it like millennial cringe humor. And I totally get that. Like all of her stuff is a little bit corny. But if you just don't take it too seriously, if you kind of see the humor in it, kind of the theatrics and like the fantasy element, like I think about the look what you made me do music video from Reputation and that scene where she's like crawling out of the grave, like it's so on the nose, like zombie movie. She could have done something like super deep or conceptual or whatever, but I kind of like that she just does the, I don't want to say obvious because I know that it's it, there's a lot of creativity that goes into it, but kind of, you know, the obvious thing. And I like that. I appreciate that. I embrace the millennial cringe humor of it all. And yes, she's going on tour. Yes, I'm going to try to get tickets. I got in line at ticker ma- ticker, <laughs> Ticketmaster already. Anyway, I'm a big fan of Midnight's. The eras of Taylor Swift are really fascinating to me. Midnight's kind of feels like ambiguous, like it's not like a set. Like reput- the Reputation era had a clear aesthetic. The Lover era had a clear aesthetic. I don't know what Midnight's is, and I like that. 
So I would like to enter my midnight's era. I would like to have an ambiguous style, you know, kind of a uh, what's that word uh, when you put a bunch of conglomeration, a conglomeration of a bunch of different eras. And I feel like that's what Midnight's is. And um, yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. My my favorite songs change every day, which is pretty classic, classic Taylor Swift. I feel like you you listen to the episode or the episode, <laughs> the album all the way through. Like I did this. Me and Kylie listened to it all the way through. We actually had such a cute best friend moment. I'm going to tell this story, Kylie, because I thought it was so cute. So we went out to dinner. We went up to Sundance, which if you're from Utah, is just, it's a gem. It's a gem in in our state. I also used to work there and it's like still my favorite job I've ever had. Every time I go, <laughs> every time I go, I, you know, those TikToks of people <laughs> like making fun of the person who used to work work at the restaurant and then they go to the restaurant and they're like, who's managing? Who's managing back there? Oh, are you new? Are you new? Yeah, I used to work here. That's how I am with Sundance. So we went to Sundance for dinner. We had like such a fun best friend night. And then while we were at dinner, Midnight's came out. And so we drove around, like we drove around our high school, our old houses, like everywhere that was nostalgic for us. And we listened to Midnight's and it was, it was so cute. Kylie, wasn't that cute that we did that? And yeah, we listed all of our favorites and my favorites have now completely changed. I will say, okay, let me tell you this one thing though. Antihero, antihero, however you say it, fell from the top of my list pretty quick. Not because I don't like the song, but because of the over like TikTokification of it. It just got old fast. It, I just heard it so much, which obviously is the point of putting things on TikTok. But man, that fell from grace quite quickly. Uh, right now, I would say my, like in this moment, in the the time I'm recording, I would say my favorites are You're On Your Own Kid. One of, I, I cried. I cried during that song, which was embarrassing, but I did. Uh, You're On Your Own Kid. I love Question. I also love Snow on the Beach, which was one of my least favorite the first time I listened through. I also love Would Have, Could Have, Should Have. And oh, what's that one? It's a bonus track. Oh my gosh. Why can't I remember what it's called? This is embarrassing. I'm going to look it up right now. <sighs> I hate when I hate when I do this. Oh, High Infidelity. I like that one. I think I like all of the bonus songs, maybe more than the original thir 12 or 13 or however many she released. Um, but yeah, I really, really, really like it. It's quickly becoming my favorite. So oh, there's my there's my Taylor Swift talk. It's out of the way. It's out of the way for you non for you non Swifties. This episode of The Bad Broadcast is sponsored by Allbirds. Allbirds is really having a moment. Wouldn't you guys say? I feel like it's a very recognizable brand and with good reason because the shoes are literally like a spa for your foot. And I would know because I spent a lot of years wearing very, very, very uncomfortable shoes. So uncomfortable that I even had to get surgery on my foot. I'm not saying Allbirds would have healed my foot. I'm just saying if I would have found them sooner, my feet would have experienced a lot more comfort early on. Their wool runner is a perfect option for the colder months. It's super comfy, super cozy, and it's perfect for everyday wear even in the winter. Best of all, it's made from natural materials that tread lighter on the planet. And I think this is so cool. They put their carbon footprint right on the shoe so you can see the difference that it makes, but they also offset that footprint to zero, making their wool runners carbon neutral. They're made with naturally comfortable and durable ZQ certified merino wool. They're machine washable, which is the best thing ever. I hate when shoes get dirty and you're just like, okay, I guess they're dirty forever now, but they're easy to wear. They're easy to clean and they're designed to be versatile and stylish. So they are a natural fit with any outfit. So this holiday season, give tidings of comfort and coziness maybe to somebody else, maybe to yourself, with the Allbirds Wool Runner. Discover your perfect pair today at allbirds.com. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. So when life gets me down, when I'm feeling sad, when I'm feeling stressed, when I'm feeling angry, I always wish that somebody would just present to me an instruction manual. Just tell me the rules. Tell me exactly what to do and I will follow them. Give me the user manual for life. However, 
that does not exist, which I think is pretty rude. But if you're navigating any of life's challenges, whether you get a new job, you get a new relationship, you end a relationship, you become a parent, anything like that, the closest thing to a user manual is turning to therapy. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills, which makes therapy kind of the closest thing to a user manual. Something I've heard a lot from you guys is that the hardest part of starting therapy is not knowing if you're going to click with your therapist and being worried about finding a new therapist if you don't click. That's something that I love that BetterHelp does. You can fill out a brief questionnaire to match yourself with a therapist, but if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It really couldn't be simpler. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists that are available 100% online and more affordable than in-person therapy. So there's no waiting room. There's no traffic. There's no endless searching for the right therapist. So you can learn more and save 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash bad. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash bad. Now it's time to talk about our main event. This is a deep dive that I have wanted to do for a while. It's been at the top of my list. And weirdly, I started my research and the same day somebody posted in the Facebook group and said, I really think we need a Mary Kate and Ashley deep dive. And I thought we're all on the same page. We're all on the same wavelength. I just started the research. So everybody in the Facebook group knew that this topic was coming. But if you're anything like me, which I assume you are, you grew up with like a steady flow of Mary Kate and Ashley movies. Like it was just a staple in everyday life. We met them in Full House. We went through Paris, London, Rome, New York. We traveled the world with them. And what's fascinating to me about them is how mainstream they are, like how prevalent they were in our childhoods and how little we know about them now. They really kind of went back into their cave. They've stayed very out. I mean, I don't want to say out of the public eye because they obviously are still very famous, but you know, they gave up acting. And even after giving up acting, even after giving up kind of like the brand that they had growing up, they are still some of the wealthiest women in Hollywood, wealthiest self-made women. They didn't come from famous parents and they still, they're still at like the top of that list. So what is their story? How did they get started? Why did they stop? We're digging into the nostalgia. We're going to revisit their movies, their careers, and where they are now. I loved researching this topic, and we're going to kind of separate it into three segments. So like the full house days, so like their really young years, then their like mid middle part, which is like their most significant part that we all know, you know, when they were making all of those movies, when they were probably their most famous. And then the last part is kind of where they are now, how they ended up working in fashion rather than in Hollywood all of that. Another reason why I loved researching this is because when I hit a creative rut, I like to sit down and list things that inspire me. And genuinely something that really inspires me is this like early 2000s nostalgia. And I have a theory as to why we all feel, I feel like millennials, man, we are nostalgic. We love us. Some throwback music, movies, pop stars, all of that. And here's my theory. So we didn't grow up with social media obviously. We don't have YouTube. We don't have TikTok, Instagram, any of that. And when you have social media, you can find people with very niche interests. Like whatever you're into, there's something on the internet that you can participate in, a group you can join, videos you can watch, whatever. But because we didn't have social media and we didn't have like, inter like I mean, we had the internet, but you know, we didn't have like open internet access to absolutely anything. I feel like millennial women grew up with a lot of the same stuff because our options were like going to rent movies or going to the movie theater. Like th those were the only two ways we could watch movies, which means we were all watching the same things because we could only go to the theater. We were watching the same movies, all of us. Does, do, does that make sense? I wrote this and I couldn't tell if it was coming across clearly. I just think that a lot of millennials grew up with the same experiences because we had like the radio to listen to music. I mean, uh, we could have I I mean, I started using iTunes when I was probably like f maybe 15 or 16. But before that, we just kind of had what was popular. That's what was accessible. I'm hoping that that makes sense. But I think that that's why so many of us have the same tie to like the same nostalgic people and things and movies. And we grew up kind of watching the same stuff. 
Like, we didn't have Netflix. We couldn't watch whatever we wanted, whatever we were into. We had Nickelodeon, Disney Channel, Cartoon Network. Like, that's what we had to watch if you grew up with cable. So we grew up consuming the same stuff. And speaking for myself, Mary-Kate and Ashley just had this way of embodying exactly what I wanted to be when I was younger. They were like the ultimate cool girls. And the thing about them is that because there were two of them, they always had every aspect of like a very, very cool girl. So one of them was always like kind of a little bit more tomboy. I feel like one of them always had a boy name like Riley, Shane, Alex. Like one of them was kind of the tomboy and then one of them was like the feminine, you know, into all of that. So I used to watch them and think, oh, if I could be both of these people, if I could combine their qualities, I'd be like the coolest person ever. So researching them was very interesting, but in a weird way, it helped me like piece together why I was the way I was when I was younger, because I just, I've said it before, but like the majority of my personality is pieced together from like Mary Kate and Ashley movies, Lizzie McGuire, and the rest of the Disney Channel starlets. Like that's why I am the way I am. So now that we've introduced our topic for the day, let's start with our first segment, which is their early years. Let's start from the very beginning, perhaps, when their life began. June 13th, 1986, Mary-Kate and Ashley were born. Ashley was born first by two minutes, followed by Mary-Kate. And some of you will know this, but kind of a fun fact, they are not identical. They are, in fact, fraternal twins. And the more you look at them, you do kind of see the fraternal aspect. They, They have a different look to them. But like, at first glance, and especially when they were younger, for sure look identical. But now when you see them, you can kind of tell that they're they're not. But it is pretty crazy. It is pretty crazy how similar they look. They were born in Sherman Oaks, California to J- J- Dave and Jarney Olson. Dave was a mortgage broker and Jarney was a former ballet dancer. So they didn't have parents that worked in Hollywood. But Sherman Oaks is an affluent neighborhood in Los Angeles. So a lot of famous people come from there. Paul Abdul, Jennifer Aniston, Drew Barrymore, you get it. It's like, you know, it's in LA city. It's in the Northeast. It's like Northeast of LA proper. So the twins also have a brother that's two years older than them. And his name is Trent. Trent did not pursue a career in Hollywood, obviously, since the majority of you have probably never heard of them. He did do a bit of acting as a kid. He appeared in some of their movies as their brother, like their younger, like Adventures of Mary Kay and Ashley Olsen. Remember those movies? He actually did go to film school, but ultimately pursued a career in art. And he wrote and published several comic book series. Overall, he seems like a very normal guy. Like I looked at his Instagram He's still using the Valencia filter. He gets like 100 likes on his photos. Pretty remarkable considering the fact that his three sisters are some of the most famous people on the planet. And yes, three sisters, not just Mary-Kate and Ashley, because that third sister, let's touch on her really quick, is their younger sister, Elizabeth Chase Olsen, known as Lizzie to those who know her. She was born three years after the twins, and her acting career didn't start as a child like the twins did, but it actually started later when she was almost 22. Her first role was as Martha in the 2011 movie Martha Marcy May Marlene alongside pretty big names like Sarah Paulson and Hugh Dancy. So not long after she started her career, she was cast in Avengers. That was in 2015 as the Scarlet Witch slash Wanda and of course, has had an insanely successful career since then, starring in tons of Marvel Marvel projects, including WandaVision. I'm not a Marvel gal myself. I used to be like an like a major hater. Now I'm like a minor hater. Like I'll watch some, some of them. I'll dabble in an Iron Man every now and then. But it's got to be like the golden ticket of an acting career to get Avengers. You know, like I'm sure it, it's annoying for people. They're like selling out or whatever. But when Marvel comes knocking at your door, you open it, okay? You're set for life once you get a Marvel role, even like a side character, even just a little, a, a, a two-liner in a movie. I'm sure you make just crazy money. I think Marvel, let's see how much Marvel has grossed over. Let's see, let's see like how much has Marvel grossed? Oh yeah, just a casual 27.6 billion billion with a B. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of cash. All right. So that's Elizabeth. We won't focus on her, but I do really like her. I've I've seen like a few other things she's in, not just Marvel. And I think she's great. 
I think she's really great. And I always forget that she is the twin sister because she doesn't really ever talk about it. At least I haven't watched any interviews where she talks about it. I'm sure they keep it very, very private. So Trent and Elizabeth are Mary-Kate and Ashley's full siblings, but they also share two half-siblings from their dad, a half-sister Taylor and a half-brother Jake. I couldn't find a whole bunch on them, but I did think it was weird because I have a bro- I have two brothers named Taylor and Jake. Crazy, right? So now that we know a little bit about their siblings, let's get back to Mary-Kate and Ashley. They were born and basically immediately began their careers, not not even a year after they were born, their acting career started. They were cast in Full House when they were only eight months old, and they were sharing the role of Michelle Tanner, which is the youngest of the Tanner girls. So we, you know, we got DJ, we got Steph, and we got Michelle. Full House is really where their story begins. Their mom, Jarney, took them to an agency when they were seven months old, and after sending in a few pictures, they were cast almost immediately. But according to them, it was because when they went to their in-person audition, there were 20 sets of twins. And they were the only set of twins that didn't cry, which I think is like kind of kind of weirdly a morbid type of foreshadowing for what their life would be like. You know, they got cast because they were the ones that didn't cry and they were basically not allowed to complain. And they were basically held to that standard for the rest of their childhood. They were not allowed to complain. They were not allowed to cry. If they did, they got in trouble. They were just meant to do exactly what the adults in their life wanted them to do. Kind of a depressing moment. This episode of The Bad Broadcast is brought to you by ShipStation. The most wonderful time of the year is upon us. Well, it's around the corner, which means if you're running an online store, the busiest and most hectic time of the year is also right around the corner. Also, everybody puts off shopping until the very last minute, which means you have to put off shipping until the very last minute. When you're buried in orders and emails from customers, you'll wish you had ShipStation because if you're still using the default shipping option to run your online store, chances are you're putting up with a lot of unnecessary hassle. ShipStation works with all of your favorite places to sell online. So Amazon, Etsy, eBay, Shopify, and more. You can manage every order from one simple dashboard. You can automate routine shipping tasks. You can print shipping labels and you can compare rates and delivery times to optimize every shipment. You'll save time, money, and stress during the holiday rush. The last thing you need is something else to stress about. Also, when you sign up using my promo code, you'll get two months to try it free. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that do ShipStation for a year become customers for life. I am proudly one of them. So give yourself the gift of stress-free holiday shipping. You can use the promo code BAD, B-A-D, today at ShipStation.com to sign up for a free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com. You'll go to the top of the page, click the little microphone, enter the promo code BAD, and get a free 60-day trial. This episode of The Bad Broadcast is sponsored by Caraway. Oh my gosh, I was so excited to partner with Caraway because I have seen their stuff everywhere. I have always wanted to try it. Also, when it gets cold, all I want to do is cook. I just want to make soups and stews and chili and bread and anything warm, and this is the most gorgeous cookware I have ever seen. And not only is it gorgeous, it's non-toxic cookware and bakeware so you can make healthier cooking a piece of cake. Oh, that's another thing I like to make, cake. Caraway Homes non-toxic kitchenwares are all designed for the modern home and feature a chemical-free ceramic coating so food can be prepared with peace of mind that no hard-to-pronounce compound will leach into your healthy ingredients. All sets come equipped with easy access storage solutions so that no stacking is required and gone are the days of misplacing your lids. So this cyber season, they are having an amazing sale. You can save up to 20% on all Caraway products, including their internet famous non-toxic cookware set. And for the first time ever, you can now save on Caraway's food storage, tea kettle, and mini cookware. This exclusive deal will not last long, so make sure you shop your favorite colors and products while you still can. Visit carawayhome.com to take advantage of their cyber season event and score up to 20% off of your next purchase of non-toxic kitchenware. This deal won't last long, so go to carawayhome.com to shop all of their incredible products for up to 20% off this holiday season. That's caraway, C-A-R-A-W-A-Y, home.com.
Also, I was watching a bunch of old interviews when I was doing this research. And the first, the, the earliest one I could find was of their mom saying that she took her girls into the interview or sorry, into the audition. But as they got older, they started saying it was their mom's friend who took them in. It kind of, to me, seems like they're trying to protect their mom from all the hate that, you know, would inevitably come when you have a child, a child star as your kid. Like, I I didn't get the vibe that their mom was a stage mom. I didn't get it. Like, it didn't strike me as she was really pushing for it. And I think they kind of twisted this narrative that their mom's friend brought them in. So nobody would be like point the finger at Johnny and be like, you put your girls through this. You made them get jobs when they were nine months old. It seems like they were trying to put some distance between that to to protect their mom, which is admirable. It's, they seem to have a very good relationship with her. So back to Full House. I've always wondered why they would cast twins instead of just one baby. Like what would be the point of casting twins? If you if they're playing one character and the short answer lies within child labor laws at the time, because children are only legally allowed to work for a certain amount of time. So if you cast twins, boom, double time, you can now contract each twin for that same amount of time and you're getting twice the amount of screen time with the baby. So not only did they get double the time, but if one kid was throwing a tantrum or being uncooperative, they had another one to choose from. Doesn't that just like reading this back? I'm like, that is so they felt so disposable. Like if you're going to throw a tantrum, if you're going to cry, we're just going to replace like that is their babies. Of course, they're going to cry on set. So while these child labor laws seemed like they were protecting the kids, they were actually creating a lot of loopholes for studios to jump through to basically overwork children day in and day out. And the twins would confirm this later in their life. They would say that their early years felt like being performing monkeys, which essentially they were. I mean, it's not the same thing as like, you know, an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old verbally expressing that they want to audition for something or they want to get really into theater or dance or singing or whatever. I mean, they were actual infants. They had no, they had no say. They were essentially performing monkeys. So on the on the set of Full House, their parents were were always there, but they noticed that the girls were getting anxiety when the parents would walk into the room because they would see their parents, they would reach for them, they'd cry. So they kicked their parents off of the set of Full House, which, you know, doesn't that doesn't ever that doesn't ever scar anybody to be taken from their parents unwillingly. So in Bob Saget's book, he talks about how the twins were really not cared for very well on set. They didn't have anybody there, and I'll get into this in the, in a minute, but they didn't really have anybody on set that was just there for their well-being. Bob Saget even said that he would have to change their diapers sometimes because their hygiene was being neglected. Like, in, I think it's in his book where he talks about how it was such a distraction because the kids hadn't been changed in like hours. They smelled bad. And so he took them back and he like changed their diaper. So this seems really sweet, but I do want to take a side, a side road here because I want to talk about Bob Saget for a second. Bob Saget, he just died. I know a lot of people love him. I saw like a million tributes to him, which I, I feel like is kind of bizarre because he's, he's very well known for being very inappropriate, very crass, I think his book is called Dirty Dirty Daddy or something. He he was just the he was the opposite of Danny Tanner. Like we all know Danny Tanner on Full House, his character really clean cut, you know, you know, running the household, very organized, very appropriate and all of that. Uh Bob Saget it was basically the exact opposite. So I felt weird that there were so many tributes to him because I was like I swear I've read before about something like creepy that he did on set. Like, I feel like I've I've read about this and it is true. He talked about it very openly on like lots of podcasts, lots of talk shows. It's just it's insane to me the different standards we hold celebrities to. Right. Like Bob Saget. I'll tell you guys the story of what he did that was super inappropriate. Like Bob Saget does that. But then somebody else like a younger celebrity does something way less bad. But Bob Saget's literally never canceled and everybody still loves him. It's just weird. Our our standards are so arbitrary. But basically what Bob Saget did is he had a doll that was a stand-in for Mary Kate and Ashley that he would rehearse with. So when they were kids and they would be, you know, off the clock or whatever, he would rehearse with this doll. Basically, one day when he's rehearsing his lines, he I mean they didn't go into details, thank goodness, but he started like doing something to the doll like 
super inappropriately. Like he was talking to the doll like it was Michelle, his on-screen daughter, played by the twins. And then he started doing something sexual, something sexual to the doll. And all of the monitors were on. So all of the cameras were on. Everybody saw it. The whole cast, the whole crew, including the twins, they all saw it. And somebody said, Bob, the, the cameras are on. Like, like, stop. You have to stop doing that. And he said, well, turn them off because I'm working, which is a weird response. Very weird response. But just that, I mean, that's like, that's what we know about. You know, like that's the that's the one slip up that he had that we do know about. And usually people who do things like that, that's not the only time they've done something like that. People aren't like super clean, cl- clean cut and appropriate and uh, not creepy. And then just all of a sudden do something really creepy. Like that doesn't happen. So I would bet that there was more. I don't really know. I don't want to speculate. But that's just kind of my guess is that there was a lot of other stuff behind the scenes that was probably not appropriate. So back to child labor laws for a minute. Because they didn't have parents on set, this is what I was talking about, that they didn't have anybody on set really taking care of them. Since they didn't have their parents, it was required that there was a child care specialist on set at all times who was specifically there to look out for the children. However, the person who was hired to look after the twins was also employed by the production company. So at the end of the day, she was treating them like employees. She was working for the show. She wasn't just like a nanny that they brought in or a family friend or somebody who their only priority is the well-being of the kids. The the woman who took care of them, who was named Adria, it was also taking care of the kids and making sure that they were working hard enough. There were several kids on the set of Full House, obviously we know. So I'm assuming each kid had their person kind of that was in charge of them. And Adria was the one who worked with the Olsen twins. In later interviews, when the girls were a little bit older, it seemed like they did have a good relationship with Adria. She worked with them the whole time they were on Full House. But she was also very much in favor of the parents not being around. And it seemed like her main priority was just making sure that the girls worked. It seems like the twins kind of deconstructed a lot of their early fame over time, which absolutely makes sense. Because when they were younger, like when they were making, you know, the movies that we're familiar with, Passport in Paris, all that. When they were doing that, they were saying a lot of positive things about Full House. But then I feel like as they kind of started to back out of Hollywood and stop acting, then they've kind of been more outspoken about how hard it was, the things that they went through, and just how harmful they felt like it was to be a child star at that age. So the twins were really struggling on the set of Full House without their mom. And Jarney seemed to really struggle as well. She wanted them to quit after the first year. She was not. She was having to drive them back and forth. She wasn't spending enough time with her other kids. She wanted to spend time with the twins, but they were always working. And ultimately, the the production company wanted the twins to say stay, so they set up arrangements for a ride to come pick them up every single day, take them to work, so that Jarney could stay at home with her other kids. And ultimately, their mom did decide to let them continue. Members of the cast stepped in to help when they could, but without any parents on set, there was just nobody there who was only interested in their well-being. And that is probably a, I mean, it's not overt that the the twins would know that that was what was going on, but it's got to be kind of in the air. Like, you know that nobody is really there. Everyone's there to make sure that you're doing your job and you're making money. Maybe that's presumptuous. I don't know. That's just kind of, that's kind of my read on it. Uh, that they just didn't have anybody on set there that they that they could really count on for their well-being. So after season one of Full House, it exploded. It became insanely popular. It topped every, you know, chart, ranking, listing, whatever. It was prime time. And the twins were officially in the mainstream spotlight before they could even speak full sentences. And the industry around them was getting ready to build an empire with these twins. So at the ripe age of four, think of a four-year-old in your life. I bet a bunch of you out there have four-year-olds. Think about negotiating contracts, hiring managers, bringing in lawyers, bringing in, you know, payroll people, making hundreds of thousands. Imagine that happening to the four-year-old in your life. It's pretty overwhelming. One time my grandma told my four-year-old nephew that he had a fish on his shirt, but it was actually a shark, and he had a meltdown. He he was not about to handle that. So just, just picture a four-year-old. Oh, just so young, so tender. So at the age of four is when they first started having these contracts negotiated on their behalf. Their dad, Dave, connected with an entertainment lawyer named Robert Thorne, who is ultimately how the twins started making real money. Initially, they were making $4,000 per episode, and 
their contract then went up to $25,000 per episode. So because of this success, the parents brought Robert on as the girl's manager. And Robert began working with Jeff Franklin, who's the creator of Full House. And they started working on more movies that the girls could do. And their first one that they did was to Grandmother's House We Go. I remember all of these really, really well. I watched I watched all of their, you know, Adventures of Mary Kate and Ashley uh, to Grandmother's House We Go. You're invited to Mary Kate and Ashley's party. I watched all of those. Like when I was going through their IMDb, I was like, yeah, I can remember specific moments from almost all of these movies. So they worked on to Grandmother's House We Go when they were four or five. And that was a made for TV movie starring the twins. And it was the first time that they appeared on screen together as separate characters. Obviously, they had only done Full House, which they were playing one character. So now they're making their debut as the twins. And it was wildly successful. So Robert Thorne went to ABC and basically told them, like, we want to take over the network. We want Mary Kate and Ashley to have, you know, a series, three or four movies, a few specials and they were they initially told them no but robert thorne said well you're going to regret it if you don't because they're going to be huge we we will go find another network if you're not going to take it and eventually abc did so at this point robert thorne teamed up with Johnny and dave to create dual star no i had absolutely no clue that this was owned by the Olsons. It was a production company. It's at the beginning of all of their movies, you know, their little logo, but it made the twins the youngest producers in history. Obviously, making them producers, starting a production company was not not a normal thing. It wasn't ever something that every child star did. I don't even know if there was any other child stars that did that. But because they owned their production company, because they were technically producers, they could pump out project after project after project because this was the time of straight to VHS movies. Their movies weren't going to theaters. They didn't have a bunch of hoops to jump through. They were just cranking these out. So they had three TV movies that were totally taking over the network. It was To Grandmother's House We Go, Double Double Toil and Trouble and How the West Was Fun. Those were their three. And then they also had their whole roster of Adventures of Mary Kate and Ashley and You're Invited to Mary Kate and Ashley's Blank Party. They were flying off the shelves. shelves. They were doing really well, but also they were eight years old. And all of these were coming out in like a three-year span. Most child actors now, I mean, this, this is a guess, but I would be shocked if any of them we're making movies at the rate that Mary Kate and Ashley were making them. I mean, I mean, it's dozens. If you go to their if you go to their IMDb and you look at how many, you know, adventures of Mary Kate and Ashley and things like that there are, I mean, they were really just it was more than full time and they were still they were still little kids. I mean, 8 is still very very young. The amount of work this had to be for them, I mean, yeah, had to be way higher than your average child star. I mean, think of like like I think about Raven, Raven Simone, who had one show with The Cosby Show or Jonathan Taylor Thomas, who had home improvement, but also was doing voice acting. You know, he plays Simba like those things. Those kids were being worked really, really hard, but they had one, maybe two projects going on at the time. Maybe other guest starring spots, but nobody was doing it like the Olsen twins. And on top of that, they were doing Full House. So they were making real money. And if you just follow the money, you see when things get weird because usually the money is going to the parents. The twins obviously could not touch any of their money until they were 18. They were getting an allowance out of it. And their parents also made them give them an allowance and also their siblings. So they were supporting their entire family. And they didn't come from a bunch of money. They didn't come from Hollywood. You know, they didn't have parents that were super wealthy at the start. So they were in charge of taking care of basic, basically everything. So if we go back to Dual Star, their production company that they own, it seemed like the safest option for them because what they were really focused on was creating like longevity in a career, you know, making sure it was long lasting, that they always had work. And because they were their own producers, this was what was happening. However, because of this, they had no relief and Robert Thorne was working them to the bone. He saw the money that could be made and he was not going to let up. So their brand is really getting going at this age, 8, 9, 10. And while this was happening, Full House was coming to an end. ABC wanted to do away with family-centered shows and they wanted to cater to a younger audience. They wanted to do more teen shows, things like that. And people thought that the, that the Olsen twins were about to disappear without Full House. But oh boy, oh boy, was that not the case. So after Full House, we enter what I am calling their super years. So these, this is that middle segment that I was talking about. This is where I remember them most from. And I would bet 
that these are the core memories that the the majority of you guys have. So with Full House ending, their work did not slow down. And there's all these interviews of them as kids and people ask them, like, do you like what you do? Do you like traveling? Do you like working? And of course they say yes. I mean, all of these adults are telling them how cool it is, how amazing their life is. Of course, of course, they're going to say, yes, we like it. But if you really frame it like, hey, do you want to go work in a different country and not see any of your friends and family for a month? Like they probably wouldn't think it was that cool. But when you have a lot of positive, you know, reinforcement, a lot of validation, a little kid is going to say that they love what they do. They're children. You know, speaking of interviews that they did with with the twins and just with children in general, it is pretty unbelievable what they would ask kids in interviews like people who we like this is why this is why cancellation and cancel culture and all that is is so like i mean i used this word earlier but it's so arbitrary we just have random rules that some people have to follow and some people don't we cancel people for one thing while we celebrate it from another person it's just it's it's wild to me anyway basically what i'm getting at is if anybody asked any of these questions to any child i knew i would immediately call the police like they were 10 years old. I think they were doing Regis or something like that. And he was like, yeah, you know, only a few more years and then you're going to look like this. And he's like points to his co-host who is what's her face with like blonde hair, big boobs. He's like, I can't wait for you guys to be that old and start looking like this. Like just weird over sexualization. I feel like through my research and just remembering kind of the times, Mary Kate and Ashley were so overly sexualized like do you remember like the weird countdown clocks to when they were legal like people were celebrating Mary Kate and Ashley's 18th birthday because finally like the other thing is like what do you mean finally they're legal it's like these old disgusting men from actually you know what never mind I remembered I remembered why old disgusting men do stuff like that. So I just answered my own question. Anyway, it's just pretty insane. And a lot of the people who were like doing interviews like these are still alive. There's one from like Donny Osmond who's talking about how, you know, do they like to kiss boys? What kind of boys do they like? They were 10 years old. It's just insane. So not only were they doing really well in their acting careers, they were making a bunch of movies, which we're going to go through in a minute, but they also just had a billion dollar brand surrounding them. Mary Kate and Ashley were on everything. And this was in the 90s. So branded products were not really a thing. The only people who had them were like Martha Stewart and Oprah. Like that was the only time you saw a celebrity like on a product. So Mary Kate and Ashley were on everything. They were on lip glosses, like hairbrushes, t-shirts, you know, board games. Like they had everything and they were making so much money. It kind of reminded me of Elvis. I mean, if this part of the movie is accurate, that they really just wanted to put his face on everything. They wanted to make money with every possible thing that they could. So they were slapping his face on everything. That's what it kind of reminded me of. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Osea. Osea is one of those brands that I used long before I even had a podcast. So when they became a sponsor. I was so excited because I can genuinely tell you how much I love their products. Osea is a California-based skincare and body care brand that has been making clean, vegan, and cruelty-free skincare products for over 25 years. They use seaweed as their hero ingredient because it's a nutrient-rich superfood with endless benefits, including anti-aging and moisturization. Osea products are clinically proven to work and they're climate-neutral certified, so they make amazing gifts for everyone on your list. It's my go-to for my sisters-in-law, for my friends, for people I work with. And right now you can get their bestseller minis collection, which makes the perfect gift and it's only available for a limited time. So it's a six-piece set of their luxurious skin and body care favorites in convenient and adorable travel size for a complete glow up from head to toe. You get their three best-selling face products, the Ocean Cleanser, the Hyaluronic Sea Serum, and the Sea Biotic Water Cream and three best-selling body moisturizers, including the Algae Body Oil, which is my personal favorite, all packaged together in a beautiful box for your gift-giving convenience. So for a gift that will impress, check out Osea's bestseller minis collection. Right now, my listeners get 10% off of your first order with promo code BAD at oseamalibu.com. You also get free samples with every order and orders over $50 get free shipping. Again, that's 10% off of your first order when you go to osea, O-S-E-A, 
malibu.com and use the promo code BAD. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey everyone, it's Kelsey Kreppel, full-time YouTuber, part-time preschool teacher, and now the host of the podcast Circle Time. Join me every week as me and my guests mix the childlike wonder and conversational openness and acceptance of preschool that we're all nostalgic for with the realism, honesty, and wisdom baked into adulthood. With classroom-structured roots, we'll rehash standout moments of day-to-day life, dive into buzzy pop culture moments, and really just get to know each other on a deeper level. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at Kelsey Kreppel and follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. So let's go through their filmography. I don't want to like linger on this for too long. I don't want it to just be me reading their IMDb, but I do want to refresh our memories on some of these movies. And yes, of course, I will be telling you which ones are my favorite. So we have the early movies that we already talked about, you know, The Adventures of and You're Invited to, all that, which, by the way, I still have their cookie song from their You're Invited to Mary-Kate and Ashley's Christmas Party. I think that's what it's from. Do you guys know the one I'm talking about? Peanut butter, butternut, coca, coconut, caramel, carob kisses, cookie cutters, cut, mocha macaroon. You do. Okay. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but I genuinely thought it was like a rap song. So I memorized it and I have not forgotten it. Okay. So the early movies, then their first, you know, of the, of the golden year movies is Billboard Dad. They're 12 when this comes out in 1998. Uh, The next year they get Passport to Paris. That's 1999 and 2000. Our lips are sealed. That one is in my top five for sure. I love Our Lips Are Sealed. I remember their dad eats burnt toast in it. And for like a month, I was eating burnt toast because I thought it was really cool. 2001, Winning London. So do you see how these movies are coming out? 98, 99, 2000, 2001. The same year in 2001, they also had Holiday in the Sun. And I do want to go on a little bit of a journey through Holiday in the Sun because it was a very pivotal movie for, for the twins. So Holiday in the Sun is kind of the marker for when they wanted to be seen less as child stars and more as teen slash adult stars. Originally, the movie was actually going to be called Last Family Vacation because it was supposed to be their coming of age movie about growing up and, quote, when you hit that age where you don't want to go on vacation with your parents anymore. Hmm. Okay. So they are 15 here. Yeah, they're 15 and they they were supposed to be like, yeah, it's not cool to go on vacation with your parents. I'm almost 30 and I still think it's cool to go on vacation with your parents. And if I was 15, I would never be like, mm, that's not cool. <laughs> Can you imagine being 15 and your parents are like, hey, we're going to take you on vacation. Be like, that's lame to travel with your parents. We travel alone. I digress. So the writers of Holiday in the Sun, two guys named Brent Goldberg and David Wagner, they were hired to write this movie which was weird because they were working in like the raunchy comedy arena. They were writing a lot of rated R movies. They even wrote and directed The Girl Next Door and a movie called Saving Ryan's Privates. Not a joke. Didn't look up what it it was. I I didn't want to. I don't want to risk it. So it was a weird project for these two guys to take on. It was like this, these two young 15 year old girls in like a pretty family friendly movie. So not only was this being written and directed by older kind of raunchier humor guys the co-stars that played the love interests were inappropriately older than them so ben easter who played ashley's love interest was 22 keep in mind these girls are 14 uh he was 22 and austin nichols who played mary kate's love interest was 20 so a, a good chunk older and like I know we can't hold, you know, whatever, same standards back. But like this one seems pretty obvious. I mean, you can't hire a 22 year old to kiss a 14 year old. That's been illegal for like a really long time. So there were kissing scenes and not to mention there's the pool scene. I rewatched it. Do you guys remember the pool scene where they all play chicken? It's like very sexually charged. And the guy who played Ashley's love interest, this Ben Easter guy, he's done interviews where he was like, yeah, Mary or 
Ashley was, you know, saying, let's go practice kissing. Let's go practice our kissing scene, you know, coming on to him, whatever. But like, she's 14. Like, I just don't feel like she should be the one held accountable for what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Like, she's 14. When I was 14, if like one of my older brother's friends like wanted to kiss, I would have jumped at the opportunity because my brain is a child's brain. I wouldn't be the one who would be making the most rational decision in that moment. So the adults that were on set were not really looking out for the girls. And they were like, yeah, they like it. They want to kiss these guys. Of course they do. They're children. They're, they're, they're pubescent teen girls. So I don't know. I just don't think that that was handled appropriately. That's just my opinion. I don't want to get too, you know, too prudish about it, but it just, that's where I stand. Hoping that we all share that opinion that a 22 year old should not be kissing a 14 year old girl. That was in 2001. In 2002, they filmed Getting There, where they go to the Olympics in Salt Lake City. Shout out. But it kind of makes sense that Holiday in the Sun was their final kid movie because I remember watching Getting There and it did feel like they were kind of stepping into like older, like they just felt older when they filmed Getting There. So that was in 2002. Another movie that came out in 2002 was When in Rome. That's another one that is one of my faves. 2003, The Challenge, another one I love. And 2004, which is New York Minute. And New York Minute would be the last time they appear on screen as sisters. They continued to act a little bit, like just a little bit. They were in a couple of shows. They had some guest starring spots, things like that. But they never again worked together on screen. So, now that we finish the golden years, the super years, let's go into where they were after their acting career ended, after they decided to stop doing, you know, the twin movies and kind of giving that up. They stepped more into fashion. Let's go into that. I'm going to put a trigger warning here, too, because there's mention of eating disorders. And if you're not into that, you don't have to listen. Um, but during the rollout of New York Minutes, so the, when they were doing the press for all of this is when rumors really started up about Mary Kate and how thin she was. Let's just go ahead and put it out there that literally no body type is acceptable in Hollywood. If you're too thin, it's bad. If you look just right, you still have problems. If you're a little bit overweight, you're fat. There's no body type that is like, and what do people, like, what do people expect when we put women in this position at a very young age? They're bombarded every single day with criticism about their face, their looks, their bodies, everything they do. What do we expect? No human brain is equipped to handle that type of criticism. Like it's so unfair to like the person who's in this position. It's so unfair to Mary Kate and Ashley to be subjected to that. And there's like, like there was no way to protect them. There's no way to protect them. Anyway, just feel very bad for her. So they were on the verge of being 18 and they were going to enter NYU in the fall. They did SNL to promote New York Minute and they talk about how they were about to turn 18. But right before they turned 18, their dad admitted Mary Kate into a treatment facility. After she got out of the treatment facility is when the Oprah interview happened. I don't know if you guys remember the Oprah interview. If you watch it, it it feels like a core memory for me. I remember it really well when it happened. I watched it back. It's still just as terrible. But Oprah basically, not basically, she straight up straight up asks them, well, what's your size? What size are you? People think you're too thin. So what size are you? The girls get visibly uncomfortable. They're like, we're short. You know, we're just like smaller people. And Oprah's like, hmm, that's interesting. That's interesting that you don't know what your size is. It's like, okay, weird. Again, people just felt like they had free reign on what they could say to children in interviews. And at the time, interviews like this were not uncommon. And they certainly didn't deal with the backlash they would now. But yeah, Oprah says, yeah, there's upsetting rumors. And the girls are like, yeah, we don't read it. And Oprah's like, well, let me go ahead and tell you what they say. And also, what size are you? When you look at their life kind of all together, like we're doing right now, like when you line up all of these events, one after the other, it really does make sense why they stepped away from all of this kind of the minute that they could. So New York Minute came out in 2004. And in 2005 is when they founded their first of two clothing lines, The Row. They also own a clothing line called Elizabeth and James. However, Elizabeth and James is now part of Kohl's and they mostly just run The Row. I liked learning about how they kind of transitioned and why they made this jump from acting to fashion. And the way they put it, well, first of all, there, there's a bunch of quotes you can find about why they ended up quitting acting. And you can, there's like, you know, we just weren't passionate about it or there were no scripts that we liked or, you know, we, um, we didn't feel val not feel valued, but we didn't feel like we had control over the, the final, the final product, things like that. But it, 
to me, I mean, again, this is just my opinion. I don't know if they ever really liked acting. It doesn't seem like that was kind of their main focus. So again, when you look at their career, especially that that golden era of making movies, they weren't just actors. They weren't just doing that. They were also they were running a brand. So they were they were designing clothes. They were had, you know, nail polish, makeup, all of those things. And so their transition to fashion is actually a pretty, pretty natural one. It was something that they knew really well. They knew how to build a strong brand. So they started the row in 2005. They it, they started it just with minimalism in mind. Uh, they wanted to make like the perfect white T-shirt. That was what they started with. And then they launched a seven piece collection, all very minimal. It's still a very minimal, very chic brand. I think all their stuff is amazing. It's also not affordable. <laughs> but them them kind of stepping into this, they didn't want their name on it. They wanted it to be something completely separate. And for the first three years, they didn't even talk about it publicly. That not talking about things publicly thing is kind of what they've stuck to in their 20s and early 30s. Because now they are, let's see, they were born in 1986. I guess I could just Google their age, but let's see if I can do this. Are they 38? Wait, that can't be right. No, 36? 36. 36. Oh my gosh, I almost just got just got really really worried that they were 38 and that means that I'm almost 38. No, just kidding. Yeah, they're 36. Okay, so I feel like they they craved a lot of privacy again, which absolutely makes sense. Whenever I do these deep dives, I just feel like an intense compassion for the women that were put in situations that they probably didn't have control over. And uh, that's tough. That's really tough. So where are they now? Well, they still are very involved with the row. It's set or it's uh, headquartered in Greenwich Village and they still, you know, they still run that. In 2015, Mary Kate married Olivier Sarkozy, whose brother used to be the president of France. He's a banker. He was much older than her, probably by about 20 years. However, they did end up divorcing at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. That was finalized in 2021. Ashley has had a long-term boyfriend since 2017 named Louis, I I think Eisner is how you say that, who is an artist. And again, their, their current life is really private, very mysterious. I was really hoping that I could dig deep and find some like secret dirt on them, but they have kind of finessed their way into privacy. But we do hear from them every now and then, uh, like when Fuller House came out, we there was like a chance that they were going to do it. When Bob Saget died, I think they released a statement. There's little things that we hear about now and then. But if you had been in the public eye since nine months old, I can bet that you also would not want to be any more public than you possibly needed to. Their net worth right now is still much, much higher than your average celebrity. Together, they are worth about a billion. You know, you look up the net worth of people and you never really know. But it's what I can deduce is that they are each worth about 500 million. So a billion dollars together, running a billion dollar brand. And it's pretty crazy to think that that all happened because of one audition when they were nine months old. Something I learned about Mary Kate that I thought was really interesting is that she was really good friends with Heath Ledger. She was actually the first person that was called when he was found. Uh, they actually called her twice before they called 911. And can you guys believe it? Heath Ledger was only 28 when he died. I don't know why that that seems so young to me. If somebody would have said, how old was Heath Ledger when he died? I would have said like 40. But no, he was 28. He was 27 when he played the Joker in The Dark Knight. Mary Kate and Ashley still, you know, maintain very famous friends. You know, they still rub shoulders. They still attend the Met Gala. They're still very much in the public eye, but they do not do any public interviews. They rarely make public statements. Like I said, they made that one when Bob Saget died. But other than that, we just don't know a whole lot about them. And it makes me fascinated by them. Like I still have this weird obsession with them every time I hear about them or see a picture of them or see one of their movies come up. I just, I think they are some of the most fascinating women. I love the fact that they're self-made. And I do, I do hope, my hope, my pipe dream is that one day they either release a memoir or a documentary about their life from ages like 25 to 35. I would love to know what that time of their life looked like. They did. They attended NYU. I forgot to put this earlier when they, after they turned 18, they did attend NYU for a little bit. Oh my gosh, you guys should look up the apartment that they were supposed to move into when they went to NYU. It's truly the most insane New York apartment I have ever seen. Uh, They bought it. They furnished it. They made it like this incredibly luxurious place. And then they ended up not even moving in because they wanted to live separately. So they have compared their relationship to, you know, a marriage, a business partnership, 
Although they went through so many different experiences and probably a lot of trauma that we don't even know about, I do love that they have maintained their relationship. It seems like they have never had any type of, I mean, again, not that we know publicly, but any type of falling out, it seems like their their sisterly bond has kind of fueled them through their whirlwind career. So that is what we know about Mary Kate and Ashley Olson, the icons of my childhood, probably of your childhood. Uh, two women who just, yeah, endlessly interest me and I think were just such core parts of our childhood. So there is another, I mean, I was going to say starlet, but there's two of them, starlets that uh, we can add to our list of deep dives. We have also done deep dives on Amanda Bynes and Lindsay Lohan. Uh, those are in the back catalog of the podcast if you want to go listen to those. These are really fun for me to do every now and again. Uh, I just like to mix it up, but also you guys know I'm a, I'm a sucker for nostalgia and I love to look back on all of these things. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please always submit um, people that you want, you know, episodes about. You know, I hear a lot of like Hillary Dove, Christina Aguilera. I've always wanted to do like a boy band deep dive about like Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, 98 Degrees and O-Town, you know, like the boy bands, the, the first boy bands that I'm familiar with. Isn't it weird that we call them boy bands, but nobody ever calls like Metallica a boy band, even though they are technically a boy band. Anyway, Thank you guys for being here. Thanks for listening. I'm excited about the episodes we have coming up in November. We have kind of a mix, a mix of different episodes. So hopefully it'll keep you on your toes, keep you entertained. Uh, if you haven't yet, please remember to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Uh, leave a review if you feel like it, but you can also just tap five stars, which is also incredibly helpful. Thank you guys so much. I love you all. I love you all. I love revisiting our childhoods together. Hope you guys have an amazing week. I hope you are safe, kind, and hot always. And I will see you next week. Love you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, you can catch a new episode of The Bad Broadcast every Monday. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss anything. Also, I want to hear from you. So please leave a rating and review. You can also follow me on Instagram at The Bad Broadcast for all the behind the scenes action and more information. Talk to you next week. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.